And the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, O God. Amen. Uh, I like to look back at uh, what I might have thought or said three years ago when we last had these readings. So I hunted back in my files and there was nothing in them from three years ago. So I was trying to work out what had happened. There wasn't anything for last week or for the next few weeks. And I realised three years ago I was away. And in fact, three years ago, around this time, I was on a little island called Sabo, which is... Uh, a little island, a volcanic island, um, about an hour and a half taxi ride, and by taxi I mean little plastic boat with an outboard motor, and if you're lucky, a seat up the front, um, but probably not, uh, full of people and produce that kind of plies the waters between Honiara and Savo, all the little villages around Savo. Uh, and it's a, it's a really nice place. Um, it's a great place because there's no still water there, so there's no mosquitoes. So there's no malaria and there's no dengue fever. Um, so health-wise, it's an excellent place. And it's volcanic, so there's hot water uh, bubbling away in some of the streams, so you can go and have a hot water bath. But it's pretty simple living. Um, most of the people there are they're a step above subsistence living, but uh, not a huge step above that. Um, so most of the food they grow for themselves, they do sell food over in Honiara uh, and they use that to buy the other essentials of life like rice and cell phones. And um, you look at all, this, look at all, the, uh, all the roofs of the houses and you can see just a little tiny solar panel on them uh, which they use to charge their cell phones on. So uh, it's very different from Honiara, which you can see at night. You can see the lights of Honiara from where we were staying. A very different kind of uh, lifestyle. And I was asked to, uh, well, I was there for the Franciscans, but they timed my visit so that I could be there for the Sunday because although they have a church, they don't have a priest. So they're constantly trying to get somebody in to take the service. So I was asked to both preach and preside there. As I stood with this gospel reading, I realised that I was by far the wealthiest person in that church. I was the rich man. And I wondered what I could possibly have to say about this reading. It was... I mean, how do you preach from that position of being the wealthiest person there? I mean, I don't see myself as wealthy, but, but in that context, I was so wealthy. And it raises the question of, is there more than one way to understand the story? A few weeks ago, we heard Jesus, when he was talking to uh, the lawyer, which in the conversation that led to the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, um, Jesus asked the lawyer, what does the law of Moses say and how do you read it? Now we often put those two things together as a single question. But in fact they are two different questions. What does it say? How do you read it? So in this context, while the people of Sabo and I might agree on what the words of the story we've just heard might say, how we read it will be very different because we come from different worlds and we ask different questions of it. 
Now, there are a lot of people around who will tell you there is only one way of reading the Bible. I've been to seminars where I've been told that there is only one correct reading. And that usually is the way that the person running the seminar sees it, who is usually white, male, and middle class. And so any other reading that doesn't agree with that is deemed wrong. So a feminist reading is wrong, a black reading is wrong, a liberation theology reading is wrong, an indigenous reading is wrong. The only right reading is their reading, which comes out of their world. The reality is that, in fact, there are multiple ways of reading any piece of scripture. And today's today's piece of scripture is an excellent example. How I read this piece of scripture is going to be very different and was very different from how the people of Savo read it. And that's very different, again, from how Luke's community, the community that Luke wrote the gospel to for, was going to read it. And I suspect even that would have been different from how the people in the story would have experienced what Jesus was on about. So, let's have a go at looking at today's reading, and I'll offer some ways of understanding it. And then I'll let you work out how you might understand it. Last week, I hope, um, the heat is on. Should have worn my alb, uh, my chasuble, just to keep me warm. Um, last week, I'm hoping that you heard uh, in the gospel reading Jesus teaching his his followers how to pray the Lord's Prayer. That's good. We're on the on the same page. And the Lord's Prayer, as we all know, includes the lines, "Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread." Now, one of the blog resources that I use to uh, kind of read around these passages, says that the word hallowed in there uh, is in the passive voice. So we often think that we are the ones hallowing God's name. But because of the, because of the grammar, it's actually saying God is the one that makes God's name holy. Not us, but God. So that raises the question, well, how does God's name, how does God make God's name holy? Well, the line then goes on to say, the Lord's Prayer then goes on to say, Your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. God's name is made holy by God when God's kingdom comes on earth as in heaven. Well, how will we know when God's kingdom has come? Give us today our daily bread. Implied in this lines from the Lord's Prayer are... This idea that we do not need to be anxious and to strive. That God's kingdom comes when we are willing to rely on the fact that God will provide our daily bread. And that also comes with the, and what we are given is enough. We don't need more. God's kingdom comes when we are willing to see that what we are given is God's generous gift and to be thankful and not the rewards of all our hard work and endeavours. I think this gives us a way into the story that Jesus told today. The story we heard begins with a man coming and asking Jesus a question. 
And the question implies that the man was not willing to trust. He wanted more. He was a man who trusted in his own self. And so, right at the beginning of this story, God's kingdom has not come, and God's name is not hallowed. Now, the question that the man asked doesn't strike us as particularly unusual. We have court cases all the time about family members who go to court to dispute a will, who say, well, we should have more of this. Why has that person got it? But in Jesus' time... This would have been an extremely unusual question and would have been seen as a dishonourable question. It would have dishonoured the family because family property was never divided. To divide your family property would lessen its viability and would increase the risk that you could lose that land. And if you lost your land, then you were destitute. You then became day labourers. Now, most of the people listening to Jesus were, in fact, day labourers. Their families had lost their land. So they would have been astounded that anyone would even ask the question. It is an unaskable question. Not only does... The loss of a family's land leave the family destitute, but if the land is large enough, it would also threaten the livelihoods of all those in the surrounding community who relied on that land for their own work and food. And many of those who are listening to Jesus are those people who rely on the wealthy landowners for work so that they might have food at the end of the day. They know the cost when the land is lost. So this question is dripping with greed, individual greed. And it's a question that carries huge social cost, not only to the family, but to the whole community that relies on that land. And Jesus refuses to answer. He refuses to get into this. It's probably a really hostile question as well. The person's trying to trick Jesus. But as he often does, Jesus then tells a question, uh, tells a story about a man who has acquired land of other families because, well, those other families had debt and they had to sell. And many of those who were listening were those families. Their families had lost their land, particularly over the last few generations, particularly since the Romans had come and imposed their tax on top of all the other taxes. And in the end, a lot of small landholders had not been able to pay the tax and had had to sell that land, and now most of the land was owned by wealth, a few wealthy families, particularly Jerusalem-based families. So this man's wealth is built on everyone else's poverty. And his plan to build bigger barns and to retire raises a really interesting question. It's not one that I've ever thought about before. But if he's going to retire, does that mean he will stop farming? Does that mean his farms will no longer produce the food? What happens to all the work and the food that all those communities who rely on that farmer, what happens to them? This is not just about 
one man building bigger barns and enjoying his life. This is actually about the whole social fabric. These stories are so much more than about our individual attitudes to money. They are about our place in the kingdom of God and they remind us that our willingness to trust rather than strive has huge social ramifications. These are stories about community. Well, that's one way of looking at the story. Here's another way. And it comes out of the question, where is my heart? That's a big question. Where is my heart? Or to put it another way, what gives meaning to my life? When do I feel like my life has been worth something? When do I feel like I've played my part and the kingdom has come on earth as in heaven? I think that's a question we all struggle with in some way or other. I was talking to another spiritual director last week and we were reflecting on how hard it is to get ministers like me and Derm to, to think about this question beyond our ministry. Too often, for us as ministers, we think our worth is found in what we do. And so our, our worth as priests is bound up in what we do week by week. And when we go to spiritual direction, ministers are the ones who will just talk about what's happening in their ministry. Nothing else outside of their ministry. Their ministry is all that's important. And because we have that attitude, that's led to many of us, certainly my generation, we've gone to seminars about developing good, smart goals that are specific and measurable and achievable and realistic and time-referenced. And we've learned how to do to-do lists. And I have you know, my to-do list, comprehensive to-do lists. And our days are ruled by our goals and our smart goals and our lists. And our worth is measured by how many ticks are on that sheet of paper. Was today a good day? Are there a lot of ticks there? Well, while all of that is important, my worth actually is not measured by those things, by those ticks. And God's concern for me is not confined by what I do. On Savo, and Malaita, and Makita, and to a degree in Honiara, we spent a lot of time sitting around talking. Very unlike a, a kind of gathering of Franciscans here in New Zealand where we would have, you know, there'd be a program and there'd be lunch and then we'd be back into the program and then there'd be afternoon tea which would be quite short and we'd be back into the program and then there'd be dinner and back into the program. There it was kind of like, here's lunch which will last for quite a long time and then there'll be afternoon tea, which will last for quite a long time. And then we might have a little bit of program. And then we'll get back into, well, we'll probably have some church in there. And then we'll have another meal. And, we'll, and the, all the meals were the same. They were kind of chicken and rice. But um, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Uh, and, um, but, you know, there was a lot more just sitting around talking. Which confused me when I first got there. Because I was used to the program and getting things done. But actually, that wasn't the important thing. The important thing was people sitting around, talking, reconnecting, being with people. 
Every year I uh, try to go down to Natiawa, to the River Monastery, and um, it's, it's a place of prayer for the Urban Vision community. Um, they are all busy, uh, their community houses in, in the poorer areas of Wellington and other cities, but this place is a place where they can stop and pray and, and where they can bring people. And every morning we pray about what we would like prayer for that day. And I've always been struck by many of the people who live there pray that they will have good conversations. They never pray that their to-do list will be achieved. They never pray that all their goals will be met. They pray that they will spend time with each other and with anyone else who comes and they will have good conversations with them. I'm a slow learner. It's taken me a long time to work out that maybe on my to-do list, up the top somewhere, should be pray and have good conversations. And at the end of the week, if everything else underneath, apart from sermon, I think you guys would be a little upset if the sermon wasn't done. But if everything else hasn't got a tick next to it, and a few other things that Laurie likes me to do, but the good conversations have happened and the praying has happened and that's been a good week. But it's taken me a long time to work that out. It's taken me a long time to work out that unlike the brother who came to Jesus and unlike the man in Jesus' story, my worth is not found in what I amass. It doesn't matter how many ticks I have or how much money I have or how much land I have, or how many crops I've stored. My worth is found simply in that I am deeply and profoundly loved by God. And in the prayers and in the good conversations, I meet the God who loves me, and I hope that in those conversations the people I talk to, talk with, will also meet that God and know that very foundational thing, that our worth is found in God's love for us and nothing else. I also need to remember that this is not just about me. It's about us, together. Our worth is found in God's love for us. And that's where my heart needs to be. That's what needs to give meaning to my life. So, what gives meaning to your life? What gives you worth? Where is your heart? Let's just spend a moment thinking about those questions.